Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Now, here's Mother Miriam. Hello, beloved family. How are you doing? I'm so, so thrilled to be with you. Um, This is Wednesday of the first week of Advent and St. Nicholas. Very, very special St. Nicholas Day from which we got Santa Claus. Santa is Saint and Klaus, Nikolaus. Um, A very, very wonderful, wonderful bishop. Um, We began reading two days ago. I apologize. I couldn't be with you live yesterday. But two days ago, we began the history of Advent, and um, I want to continue that. It's just very, very wonderful and important for us to know uh, our heritage. Um, and through the years, as we began, um, uh, we saw the practice of penance, of fasting, of number of days continue uh, to decrease. <clears throat> and so let me see, since it's been a couple of days, let me just, uh, and we only read a two, three paragraphs. Let me go back from the beginning uh, to the beginning, the history of Advent from Dom uh, Prosper Garanger, who wrote it in the 1800s. So whatever he wrote is 500 years old, and it's more so today or worse today. Um, <clears throat> he begins the name of Advent from the Latin word Adventus, which signifies a coming, is applied in the Latin church to that period of the year during which the church requires the faithful to prepare for the celebration of the feast of Christmas, the anniversary of the birth of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to comment through this as I did two days ago because we won't get very far, but I think it's important that we have some um, historical comparison uh, to our Lord appearing on Mount Sinai uh, when the Israelites um, left Egypt on their way to Goshen and were before uh, the mountain of Sinai, from Goshen to Sinai to, um, um, to, to the Promised Land. And so um, in order for them, God was going to appear to them on Mount Sinai and for God to appear, the people of Israel knew, as I knew growing up, growing up in my Jewish home in Brooklyn, that you cannot look on God and live. You cannot come into his presence. He's holy, we're sinful. And there's just no way. We would be dust in a second. And so God gave Moses the instruction to tell the people not only to not touch the mountain, which would mean instant death for them, but to, <clears throat> to stay a good distance from it, to bathe, to um, pray, to even refrain from marital relations, not because marital relations are not holy, because nothing compares with being before a holy God and being in his presence. It's only by his grace uh, that we are not destroyed, being in his presence. And so, um, as we await the coming of the child, the Christ child, Um, we need to bring to mind 
the fact that no one in the Old Testament saw him. No one saw him. Only he passed by his back parts. Moses saw that. But nobody saw Christ. And now our Lord came down the Sermon on the Mount to the same mountain and talked to the people and took on flesh and lived and walked and talked and ate and slept among us. It's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Um, it's astounding. So let's not forget, we must not forget, the world must know that that little cute person in the manger is God, a very God, that God created him as he created us, but that that little baby created the entire universe. Everything was made by him and for him and through him, him, that little baby. Um, We need to know when we set up manger scenes that we are bowing before God, the God of the universe, even though it might be a porcelain doll at this point. We need to um, not forget who we are and who he is and teach our children. The mystery of that great day, the birth of Jesus Christ, had every right to the honor of being prepared for by prayer and works of penance. And in fact, it is impossible to state with any certainty when this season of preparation, which had long been observed before receiving its present name of Advent, was first instituted. It would seem, however, that its observance first began in the West, since it is evident that Advent could not have been looked on as a preparation for the Feast of Christmas until that feast was definitively fixed to the 25th of December, which was done in the East only toward the close of the 4th century, whereas it is certain that the Church of Rome kept the feast on that day at a much earlier period. Prior, beloved, to my conversion to the Catholic Church, 18 years of evangelical Protestantism, I didn't have a clue what Advent was. We were in, um, again, an evangelical, live, fantastic uh, church and that represented 20% of Protestantism. Maybe the other more formal denominations might have gone through Advent, but I never knew anything of it. <clears throat> Dom Garen Jay says, we must look upon Advent in two different lights. First, as a time of preparation, properly so-called, for the birth of our Savior by works of penance. And secondly, as a series of eclat ecclesiastical offices drawn up for the same purpose. We find It's a period of penance, beloved. I know we have parties and shopping and decorate all of that, but it's in preparation for Christmas. But God gave us the preparation for Christmas. He gave us an entire month, four weeks of penance. We have two sermons of St. Maximus of Turin on this um, <clears throat> On this subject, not to speak of several others which were formerly attributed to St. Ambrose and St. Augustine, but which were properly written by St. Caesarius of Ares. If these documents do not tell us what was the duration and what the exercises of this holy season, they at least show us how ancient was the practice of distinguishing the time of Advent by special sermons. St. Ivo of Chartres, St. Bernard, and several other doctors of the 11th and 12th centuries have left us set 
sermons, the Adventu Domini of the Advent of Our Lord, quite distinct from their Sunday homilies on the Gospels of that season. In the Capitularia of Charles the Bald, in 846, the bishops admonish that prince, that prince, Charles the Bald, not to call them away from their churches during Lent or Advent. Wouldn't that be great today if the bishops could tell um, and would tell uh, everyone to not call them away from their churches during Lent or Advent? under the pretext of affairs of the state or the necessities of war, even war, seeing that they have special duties to fulfill, and particularly that of preaching during those sacred times. The oldest document in which we find the length and exercises of Advent mentioned with anything like clearness is a passage in the second book of the History of the Franks by St. Gregory of Tours, where he says that St. Perpetuus, one of his predecessors, who held that see about the year 480, had decreed a fast three times a week from the Feast of St. Martin until Christmas. It would be impossible to decide whether St. Perpetuus, by his regulations, established a new custom or merely enforced an already existing law. Let us, however, note this interval of 40, or rather 43 days, so expressly mentioned and consecrated to penance as though it were a second Lent, though less strict and severe than that which precedes Easter. It's a mini Lent, beloved. That's what the church calls it and should be practiced as such. If we are going to raise our children Catholic and... Um, uh, uh, take them through uh, the life of the church, the practice of the church, the mysteries of the church, the joy of the church, the faith of the church. We need to keep Lent as a time of penance, many fasting in preparation for Christmas. <clears throat> Dom Garanger continues later on. We find the ninth canon of the first council of Macon held in 582, ordaining that during the same interval, <clears throat> excuse my throat, during the same interval between St. Martin's Day and Christmas, the Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays should be fasting days, and that the sacrifice should be celebrated according to the Lenten rite. That means what, one meal a day and maybe two snacks not equaling a meal. Not many years before that, Namely, in 567, the Second Council of Tours had enjoined the monks to fast from the beginning of December till Christmas. This practice of penance soon extended to the whole 40 days, even for the laity, and it was commonly called St. Martin's Lent. The Capitularia of Charlemagne in the sixth book leave us no doubt on the matter, and Rabanus Morris, in the second book of his Institution of Clerics, bears testimony to this observance. There were 11, there were even special rejoicings made on St. Martin's Feast, just as we see them practiced now at the approach of Lent and Easter. There's the music for our first break. We'll be right back, beloved, after the break and continue. Don't go away. 
Act of Consecration to St. Michael the Archangel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O most noble Prince of the angelic hierarchies, valorous warrior of Almighty God, and zealous lover of His glory, terror of the rebellious angels, and love and delight of all the just ones, my beloved Archangel St. Michael, desiring to be numbered among thy devoted servants, I today offer and consecrate myself to thee, and place myself, my family, and all I possess under thy most powerful protection. I entreat thee not to look at how little I, as thy servant, have to offer, being only a wretched sinner, but to gaze, rather, with favorable eye at the heartfelt affection with which this offering is made. And remember that if from this day onward I am under thy patronage, thou must, during all my life, assist me and procure for me the pardon of my many grievous offenses and sins, the grace to love with all my heart my God, my dear Savior Jesus, and my sweet mother Mary, and obtain for me all the help necessary to arrive to my crown of glory. Defend me always from my spiritual enemies, particularly in the last moments of my life. Come then, O glorious Prince, and succor me in my last struggle, and with thy powerful weapon, cast far from me into the infernal abysses, that prevaricator and proud angel, that one day thou prostrated in thy celestial battle. St. Michael, defend us in our daily battle, so that we may not perish in the last judgment. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. I'm so happy when I'm live. <laughs> I'm happy to be alive, and I'm happy when we don't need an encore. This is so beautiful, being with you always. We are reading through Dom Garanger, Dom Prosper Garanger's liturgical year for Advent, and this is the beginning, the history of Advent. Um, <clears throat> and I continue the obligation of observing this Lent, because Advent is called a mini-Lent, which, though introduced so imperceptibly, had by degrees acquired the force of a sacred law. It began to be relaxed, and the 40 days from St. Martin's Day to Christmas were reduced to four weeks. We have seen that this fast began to be observed first in France, but then it spread into England, as we find from Venerable Bede's history, into Italy, as appears from a diploma of Astolphus, king of the Lombards, dated 753, into Germany, Spain, and elsewhere, of which the proofs may be seen in the learned work of Dom Martin, which is titled On the Ancient Rites of the Church. <clears throat> the first allusion to Advents being reduced to four weeks is to be found in the ninth century in a letter of Pope St. Nicholas I, this is St. Nicholas's day, to the Bulgarians. The testimony of Ratherius of Verona <clears throat> and of Abbo of Fleury, 
um, both writers of the 10th century goes also to prove that even then the question of reducing the duration of the Advent fast by one-third was seriously entertained. It is true that St. Peter Damien in the 11th century speaks of the Advent fast as still being for 40 days. And that St. Louis, St. Louis, two centuries later, kept it for that length of time. But as far as this holy king is concerned, it is probable that it was only his own devotion which prompted him to this practice. The discipline of the churches of the West, after having reduced the time of the Advent fast, so far relented in a few years as to change the fast into a simple abstinence. I'm reading this and my heart is breaking, beloved, because um, we're looking at the 12th century now when everything has been gradually so, so reduced, and now we're at the 21st century where religious practice is almost totally gone. It's just such a tragedy. We don't know who we are. We don't know our faith. We don't live as God's people. We live as the world with holidays. It's so, so sad. The discipline of the churches of the West, after having reduced the time of the Advent fast, so far relented in a few years as to change the fast into a simple abstinence. And we find councils of the 12th century, for instance, Selingstadt in 1122 and Avranches in 1172, which seem to require only the clergy to observe this abstinence. The Council of Salisbury held in 1281 would seem to expect none but monks to keep it. On the other hand, for the whole subject is very confused, owing no doubt to there never having been any uniformity of discipline regarding it in the Western Church. We find Pope Innocent III in his letter to the Bishop of Braga mentioning the custom of fasting during the whole of Advent as being at that time observed in Rome. And Durandus, in the same 13th century, in his Rationale on the Divine Offices, tells us that in France, fasting was uninterruptedly observed during the whole of that holy time. Beloved, <clears throat> I've heard people say, well, you're sisters, you're, you're religious, you're this, you're that, and you have to do it or you do it. Well, we do need to do it, yes, but it's what keeps us being religious because we delve deeply into the, the, the understanding, the knowledge, the practice of the church. You can tell your children many, many things. You could read them stories, history, and all that. If you don't practice it, it's in one ear and out the other. But when you live it, it becomes true. It was Archbishop Chapu years ago, when he was yet in Denver, who said it's the genius of the Jewish people, the Passover, because God told them what to do. But they they developed a seder, which means, in Hebrew, S-E-D-E-R, it means order of service. They developed a service to commemorate um, and to live through every point of that, uh, the history of the Passover, from slavery to freedom. And that's why the Jewish people who practice it still today, who practice it truly, um, and have a lamb shank, not an orange, um, no, they know who they are, and they know their history, and they won't abandon it. 
Without the practice, it would be a story that everybody forgets. Beloved, you need to practice this with your children. They will not know who they are. It'll just be the world's holiday, and they'll, you know, maybe um, have one or two readings or a couple of candles. It'll mean nothing to them if you don't practice it. Well, my mommy, I don't want to fast for a whole month. You don't have to fast, but it's a mini fast, and we stay away from meat. Yes, basically, on, uh, certainly on Fridays, absolutely on Fridays, um, throughout the whole year. And your children may not like it, but after a while, if they know the history, if you have the lighting of the candles, the reading of scripture and prayers at, at table, they'll begin to love it. And as they get older, they'll share in those readings. They'll know this is what we do because this is who we are. As children, dear ones, we, my brother, my sister, we go out into the world. People knew we were Jewish. We didn't dress differently, although we were always modest. Um, we didn't look different. Uh, my brother didn't wear a yarmulke to school. He wore it to synagogue, to shul. But you couldn't have identified it. We didn't look particularly Jewish, I don't think. But people knew that on the Jewish holy day, we will not be at school. And they knew that we would be at shul, at synagogue, and they knew that certain things we would keep when it was the Passover. We cleaned our house of, of leavened bread to prepare for unleavened bread. People knew that. And if they gave us sandwiches during that time, we'd say, I'm sorry, we cannot eat it. It's, it's, it's the season of Passover. We would not. It's because of who we are. And we wouldn't say, because my mommy won't let me, or my daddy won't let me, or because, no. It's who we are. We don't do that. We walk with God. It was so instilled in us, dear one. That's what you need to do with your children. We're Catholic. We're God. What does it mean to be Catholic? Well, that's our religion. No, it's God's religion. We're God's people. That's why. We follow God. Well, we're Buddhist. We follow God, too. Well, you follow a different God than we do. We follow a different God than you do. Well, we believe Buddhism is true. Well, you are free to believe what you wish. But we're Catholic because we believe as the church Christ established. Not argument, but knowing who you are. Dom Garanger continues, This much is certain, <clears throat> that by degrees, the custom of fasting so far fell into disuse that when in 1362 Pope Urban V endeavored to prevent the total decay of the Advent penance, all he insisted upon was that all the clerics of his court should keep abstinence during Advent, without in any way including others, either clergy or laity, in this law. It breaks my heart. St. Charles Borromeo also strove to bring back his people of Milan to the spirit, if not to the letter of ancient times. No one, beloved, will ever be brought back to the Spirit by a law or an order being ordered, only by doing it. Only by living it does it change our lives. Parents don't tell their children what to do. They lead the home. They prepare it. They choose what is eaten and when. They choose prayers. The parents lead it. The children have no choice. And the children may rebel, but they need to do it. And it's the doing of it that will change them. 
St. Charles Borromeo also strove to bring back his people of Milan to the spirit, if not to the letter of ancient times. In his fourth council, he enjoins the parish priests to exhort the faithful to go to communion on the Sundays, at least, of Lent and Advent. And afterwards, address to the faithful themselves a pastoral letter in which, having reminded them of the dispositions with which they ought to spend this holy time, he strongly urges them to fast on the Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, at least of each week in Advent. Beloved, I would urge you the same. You and your family and your children fast Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays of Lent. And again, what does that mean? Having one meal. Having one meal and two little snacks that don't total a meal. That's basically what we do for Lent. Do that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. When I grew up, it meant not eating, not even drinking water. But the church says, no, it is a sufficient fast to have one meal and two little snacks that don't total a meal. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and abstinence on Friday. No meat. Pope Benedict XIV, when Archbishop of Bologna, following these illustrious examples, wrote his 11th ecclesiastical institution for the purpose of exciting in the minds of his diocesans the exalted idea which the Christians of former times had of the holy season of Advent and of removing an erroneous opinion which prevailed in those parts, namely, that Advent concerned religious only and not the laity. He shows them that such an opinion, unless it be limited to the two practices of fasting and abstinence, is strictly speaking rash and scandalous, since it cannot be denied that in the laws and usages of the universal church there exist special practices, having for their end to prepare the faithful for the great feast of the birth of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we now go to the traditional Latin Mass, and we follow the traditional calendar, and we follow the traditions, and we abstain from meat both Wednesdays and Fridays, and we fast every Wednesday and Friday, and on Ember Days and Rogation Days. And I tell you, beloved, how did that happen? It happened because years ago, before this community began, I was raised in Novus Ordo, and I could never say anything was wrong, but I grieved every time. I said, I finally came to the Catholic Church. Why am I grieving? This can't be it. This isn't the beauty that I read, but I didn't know there was anything else. And we became traditional by tasting the history of the church, by experiencing some of its customs that have been practiced for 2,000 years. And I said, why didn't we know this? They're beautiful. They give us identity. We're God's people. God gave this to us. Why don't we know it? This, I felt robbed. That's how your children will know who they are, by the practice of the faith, not by getting them out of fasting and abstinence and things. No. Let their spirits become strong. Let them become soldiers of Christ. We'll be right back, beloved, after the break.
Hello, beloved. This is Mother Miriam, host of Mother Miriam Live. Like the Catholic Current and the many other programs that originate from the Station of the Cross, Divine Mercy in My Soul is all about the messages that Jesus revealed to St. Faustina. It is aired every Sunday morning at 11 Eastern and Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Or you can listen anytime to Divine Mercy in My Soul on the iCatholic Radio mobile app. As part of our efforts to teach the beauty of our faith, we're broadcasting a special educational lesson every Wednesday called Lessons in Latin. I'm Canon Bourgeois, a priest of the Institute of Christ the King, Sovereign Priest. These mini-teachings break down the history of the various parts of the Holy Mass. You can hear Lessons in Latin on Wednesdays at approximately 5.15 a.m., 3.45 p.m., and 9.40 p.m. Eastern Time. That's Lessons in Latin Wednesdays at 5.15 a.m., 3.45 p.m., and 9.40 p.m. on the Station of the Cross Catholic Media Network. Hear a powerful sermon you need to share with a loved one? Maybe there's a guest, prayer, or teaching segment that deserves another listen. You can listen to any of our network-produced programs at your convenience by finding us wherever you enjoy podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and the free iCatholic Radio app. Be uplifted in your faith. Listen today at thestationofthecross.com or on your favorite podcasting platform. Hi, I'm Debbie Giorgiani. And I'm Adam Bly. Join us for the spirit world on the Station of the Cross. If we're really going to suffer, we really need to suffer here when we're in the church militant phase, right? The most difficult part for the poor soul is that they had some amount of that beatific vision in their judgment. They know they're going to get back to God, but then they're separated from God. So that's kind of the worst part because that's a spiritual suffering. The spirit world every Saturday at 11 a.m. right here on the Station of the Cross. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. I am she. This is our half hour together. And... um. You are welcome. Uh, our lines are open. You are welcome to call in or email with anything whatsoever on your heart. Toll free, 1 511 5483, or uh, email at mother at the station of the um, We have an email from, well, actually, not an email, but um, someone by the name of Judith called. Um, on Monday and just left this question for us. We didn't have time for it on Monday. And she says, does a person's obligation to honor their father and mother end with the death of their parents? For example, if we do something to dishonor them later in life, does that still count as a sin against the fourth commandment? It does, Judith, because they're still, uh, our lives are eternal, whether we spend them in heaven or in hell. They're not dead. They're more alive, said Dwight L. Moody, the Protestant, than they'll ever have been before. So if you dishonor your parents after they die, you're still dishonoring them. It's still against the fourth commandment. Uh, if your husband dies, if a wife dies, if a parent dies, and you say, well, I didn't want to tell you this while they were alive, but they this, that, and that, they might as well be alive, you're still dishonoring them. Um, we should never do that. 
We should never do that. There's no need for other people to know certain things. Um, if you're in a very, very private counseling session and you want your counselor or your priest to know certain things that are very important in your healing, that's a different matter because it's utterly confidential. But other than that, if you dishonor them later in life, it's the same as if they were still alive on earth. We have an email from Anthony who says, Hello, Mother. I heard this term this weekend and caught me off guard. Theologically speaking, what does being in a state of limbo mean? Is this something that the church still acknowledges? How does it differ from something like purgatory? Well, the church um, limbo was uh, sort of a place uh, for uh, people who weren't in heaven, they weren't in hell, maybe they weren't in purgatory, and they were just kind of in between, a no-man's land. Um, to in their fate to be decided later, but the church has taken a more definitive stand on that now. Purgatory, heaven, hell, and purgatory are definite, definite places. Um, limbo is not a place. Um, there's a wonderful article by Tim Staples. I often go to catholic.com, uh, so I don't wind up giving you my opinion or knowledge which may not be current. Um, and Tim says... The traditional teaching concerning limbo, which would be normally the limbo of, limbo of children, in other words, what happens to unbaptized children, that was the main question, um, has a fascinating history in Catholic theology. He said, it's never been the object of a definition by either the ordinary magisterium um, uh, requiring religi- religious submission of mind and will or any definitive act of the magisterium magisterial authority of the church, which would require the assent of divine and Catholic faith. So it was always the issue of the, the limbo of children. Where do unbaptized children go? It was considered a teaching in the category of common doctrine in the past because it had been alluded to by the magisterium over the centuries, as well as taught by theologians. Thus, the church has historically taught the faithful are not permitted to assert there is no limbo, at least not with any magisterial backing. But Catholics have never been required to believe in limbo as a Catholic doctrine. Um, uh, let me just see. Um, there's, there's so much here. Uh, I would say... Um, uh, here's, let me just read this. Some, uh, Tim says, will disagree with me here citing Pope Urban IV, who declared in his papal bull of union with the Greeks, um, uh, titled uh, Latentur Celi, meaning let the heavens rejoice, um, in 1439, during the Council of Florence, he said, as for the souls of those who die in actual mortal sin or with original sin only, they go down immediately to hell to be punished. However, with different punishments. Um, and uh, the question is, isn't that an example of a Pope teaching on limbo? Well, um, what the Pope is actually saying, uh, I don't know that I should go, let me, oh, something just happened to this. Hold on, I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, 
let me not read through this whole article, but you could go to catholic.com and just type in limbo and you'll bring, um, you'll bring in um, it, all these quotes and what different popes have said uh, and the explanation of them and the apologetic forum for them. Um, let me just see. I'm sorry to do this, but I'm looking it up on the spot. Um, uh, the thing is, so it's not an actual teaching of the church. It's been used as a place. Catholic faithful were never required to believe in limbo, but they were not free to condemn it either. And so uh, more lately, we've heard that the Catholic Church abolished limbo a few years ago. And here's what that charge refers to. In 2007, the International Theological Commission, which is a department of the Roman Curia under the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith and serves as an advisory board for the Dicastery, issued a document called The Hope of Salvation for Infants Who Die Without Being Baptized. It was published with the approval of Pope Benedict XVI and taught that the Church has reduced the teaching of limbo from the level of quote-unquote common doctrine among the theologians to a quote possible theological hypothesis end quote it did not do what many expected it completely abandoned limbo as benedict had said the church should do back when he was cardinal ratzinger but it did reduce the teachings prominence what does it mean um let me just go further down and um, okay, so this is the bottom line. It means that a Catholic is still free to present this teaching as a possibility, but another Catholic can now say, I'm not buying it, and then present his reasons why. Um, in fact, the International Theological Commission says that the hope of salvation for infants who die without being baptized, the commission lists what uh, Tim says he'll number as three essential reasons or categories of reasons why Catholics can have hope that an unbaptized infant will be saved. So it, what it seems is that if there is such a thing as limbo, which the church doesn't uh, eliminate but doesn't require anybody to believe, has to do with those who may be saved. And there's three reasons. One, given the principle of lex orandi, lex credendi, that is what we pray is what we believe, the liturgy has never mentioned limbo. Coupled with that, the fact that we have the Feast of the Holy Innocents, where we liturgically venerate as martyrs, unbaptized children, two years of age and younger. This becomes positive evidence in favor of at least some unbaptized children being saved. Secondly, the document adds, quote from the Catechism, the great mercy of God who desires all men should be saved, and Jesus' tenderness toward children, which caused him to say, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. Allow us to hope that there's a way of salvation for children who have died without baptism. I would add here the fact that Luke chapter 18 uses the Greek word um, for infant in this same context of Jesus saying, let the infants come to me. This most manifestly brings out the truth that these unbaptized babies are in absolute need of the prayers of the church because they do not have the ability to pray for themselves. The good news, Holy Mother Church does indeed pray for them. This is a powerful reason for the hope that these babies will be saved. And thirdly, 
The document makes a powerful point in reminding us that the church respects the hierarchy of truths and therefore begins by clearly reaffirming the primacy of Christ and his grace, which has priority over Adam and sin. This is not to diminish in any way the necessity of baptism. That teaching is de fide. But it is to show, given the fact that the church acknowledges other ways people who are not baptized can experience the grace of the sacrament without the sacrament, that is, that it is reasonable to think that infants who for their part do not place any personal obstacle in the way of redemptive grace would be able to receive salvific grace for salvation. Um, Let me read these two closing paragraphs. Given all of these reasons for hope, one might think the conclusion of the commission would be absolutely certain and definitive, but it was not. The conclusion was that we cannot have the same level of certainty of the salvation of infants who die without baptism that we do for infants who have been baptized. Hence, the commission emphasized that the church has emphasized for 2,000 years there is still and always will be the absolutely crucial need for parents to baptize their babies. This truth is paramount. Again, limbo, or something similar, is still a possible theological hypothesis. But we also have reason to hope that these children will, in fact, be saved. We can do so because the church entrusts these children to our merciful God. Catechism 1261 whose salvific will for all is a matter of public revelation. Also, and he's quoting Second Peter and First Timothy, also we have reason to hope that the prayer of the church liturgically and prayer and the prayer of Christians may well suffice to bring the grace of baptism to these unbaptized infants in need. So, we're born into original sin, beloved, but these children have not... Um, uh, who have not been baptized, have not and are incapable of committing actual sin. And so to say the limbo of the children is to simply say, um, we don't know where they are, but God does. Those who go to hell go to hell immediately. Those who go to heaven go to heaven immediately. And those who are in purgatory in order that they may go to heaven do so go to purgatory immediately. Um, children unbaptized would not be in purgatory. They have not committed sins uh, that they need um, to do penance for. And so they would either be in hell or they would be in heaven. And we don't know that. We don't know that, but Tim Staples and the church itself has given us much reason to believe that they will be saved. Um, I like what St. Augustine says. He said, we are bound by the sacraments, but God is not. Okay, I hope that helps you, Um, Anthony. It does not give you a definitive answer, but um, uh, it differs from something like purgatory because purgatory is a definitive place where in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 um, Maccabees, Second Maccabees 12, other places. It's a definite place where people who die in a state of grace do go if they have not expiated 
all the temporal effects of their sins on earth, not the eternal effects which Christ did on the cross. Um, we have Kristen from New York on the line. Kristen, hold on, dear one. We'll get your call right after the break, and um, it will still be time for others to call in or send their emails. Um, um, and the toll-free number, one 877 5483 or email at mother at We'll be right back. We proudly bring the truths of the Catholic faith to countless listeners through radio and mobile devices, and we're grateful for the feedback we've received. I grew up Catholic Church, haven't been in the Catholic Church for decades, but I'm in the process of working my way back for the simple reason that I needed a place to listen to pro-life, pro-family messages. Catholic radio is it. It's a place to hear that message without all the political bias and all that that's going on on News Talk Radio. It changed my life. It's the only station I turn on. Catholic station is an answer to prayer. It, it couldn't be more fulfilling. It's helped me learn more about the faith, and it's helped me to deepen my faith as a result of that. It's on continuously in my house, day and night. You can't imagine how much I receive from that channel. If you've been blessed by listening to the Station of the Cross, let us know. Call 1-877-888-6279, extension 112. Then share your testimonial with us. The Station of the Cross Catholic Media Network is dedicated to answering the critical need of access to quality, consistent, professional, and proven Catholic programming. We cannot rely on other media outlets to properly represent our church. Catholic Radio reaches Catholics, non-Catholic Christians, and non-believers alike. As a nonprofit lay organization financially independent of your diocese, our apostolate is listener-supported. We hear all the time from listeners who discovered the station by seeing a Tri-God bumper magnet in traffic. You can request a free bumper magnet and start evangelizing just by driving around town. Go to thestationofthecross.com and click on Promotional Material under the About tab. There you can request a magnet for your listening area. We even have one for the iCatholic Radio mobile app. Request yours today. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. This is our last segment. We have 10 plus minutes. Our lines are open. You're still welcome to call in, dear ones. Toll free 1 877 511 5483 or email at mother at the station of the cross.com. We have Kristen from New York. Are you there, dear one? Yes. Hi, Mother. Hi, Kristen. Go ahead, honey. So I have a question. I'm a convert of several years and 
I tried to do the 33 days to morning glory. I'm trying to understand Mary more and have a devotion to her, but I got confused, so I stopped. So I guess my question is, how do I know when I'm supposed to pray to her, go to her for prayers, or go to God? I guess I just want clarification and help with that so I could feel better about it. Oh, God bless you, Kristen. There's no supposed to. You don't ever have to pray to Mary. Uh, It's God who answers prayers. He answers them directly. He answers them through saints in heaven. He answers them through our brothers and sisters on earth. If I prayed for you or you prayed for me, he would, it's God who answers them through us, through his body, whether we're in earth, in purgatory, or heaven, the, it's the communion of saints. So um, there's not a supposed to. Um, our prayers always go to God. Our prayers always go to God. Mary is... You know, how do I, let me just say, are you single or married? I'm married with with one child. Okay, beautiful. Uh, Maybe this will be a good, I I don't know your situation with your in-laws, but uh, just at least picture this. You're in love with a man, and let's just say before you marry, you're in love with him, may not your situation, but um, before you're married and you want to please him and you want to ask him what he likes or all of that kind of thing and, and, and sacrifice for him and all of that. Um, but there's certain things you know his mother knows about him that you want to know. You know, you want to know ways to really love him more, to understand him more, to get closer to him. And you might go to his mother and say, "Tell me what it was like as a baby, or you know, what vegetables does he like, or what doesn't he like? I'm going to invite him for dinner." You know what I mean? It's a little, little uh, simple illustration, but it's true. There will be, you can always pray to God and you never have to pray to Mary. But I want to tell you, dear Kristen, there is no surer, quicker um, uh, way of your getting to, into union with God than going through his mother. Because she's your mother. And she'll say, you want, you're having trouble praying, let me show you how. Um uh, ask me and I'll, I'll show you. I'll lead you. Now, you may not know how that works, but I would say, have you ever heard a book uh, of a book, True Devotion to Mary? I, that, is that St. Louis de Montfort? Is that his book? That's right. Yeah. Did you read that? No, no, I've heard of it, but no. All right. And your 33 days, is that a consecration to Mary? Yes. Is that uh, Father Gately's book? Yes. All right. How are you finding it for I yourself today, personally? I think it was on day 24, and I just thought, I, I just really want to do this right where I'm really, my heart is totally ready to go. So I, I, I want to pick it up again. just wanted to feel better about it. Well, okay. I, I would love you to get just the book, uh, True Devotion to Mary. Not that you shouldn't continue with this exercise. You might read the book personally. And then go ahead and start that exercise all over, even if you wish. But true devotion to Mary, um, it really tells us who Mary is. It said, you know, without Christ, she's absolutely nothing. She's a creature. We don't worship her. Um, She's a creature. There's no creature who knows and loves God more than Mary does. She gave him flesh and blood. It's the same flesh and blood we receive when we received the Eucharist, and Mary gave it to him. It's the glorified flesh and blood of our Lord. 
But no one knows Christ like Mary. And so um, that book right out the start says that without him, she's a burnt out cinder floating in the midst of space, zero. But with him, she's the mother of men. And that's the difference. That's the difference. So if I want to get close to God, maybe I want to be, um, I don't know, um, maybe I want to learn how to love more. I might do a, a novena to Therese of Lisieux, or I want to be more of a soldier. I want to maybe do a novena to St. George, that kind of thing. But for you as a daughter of God and as a fairly new Catholic there's no one that could help you more than Mary to come closer to her son. Now, you don't have to. Again, you don't have to. You can just go straight to God. There's no supposed to. But when you have special needs of how to get closer to Jesus, how to know him more, how to practice your faith more, how to please God more, you can go to him and ask him directly to help you with those things. Or you can go to Mary as well. And it's coming to Jesus through Mary. Um, uh, I say in the morning, uh, Lord Jesus, through the immaculate heart of Mary, I offer you all my works, prayers, joys, and sufferings of this day. Why through the immaculate heart of Mary? Because Mary makes sure that our prayers are cleaned up when when they go to God through Mary. And the fact is that God came to us through Mary and loves that we go back to him through Mary. I once heard the example of a little child coming to the on her father's birthday, little little four year old, and she's all her mother dressed in a new brain, gorgeous little fluffy dress, and new shoes, and and to give her father a birthday gift, but um, she went out in the mud and played, and she got all dirty. And she came into the kitchen, and her mother said, what happened? She said, oh, no, no, I, I, nothing. I was outside. Her mother said, oh, my goodness. She said, I want to give my gift to get Daddy. And, and the mother says, hold on, hold on. And she cleans her daughter up and redoes her pigtails and says, okay, now go. In a sense, it's a beautiful little illustration. She's a mother, and uh, she'll help us on the way. So never be afraid to go to Mary. You never have to, but your life will really blossom when you go through the mother God has given us. Thank you. That's very helpful. Thank you so much. Okay, Kristen. God bless you, sweetheart. And let me just mention, if you have any troubles with doctrines of Mary, uh, co-redemptrix, um, co-advocate, uh, co, what's the, co, what's the other thing I forget, co-mediatrix, uh, let me just mention that Mark Miravalli, Dr. Mark Miravalli, has three, they're pretty much pamphlets. They're books, but they're, they're small pamphlets. And the, each one is titled that, a co-redemptrix, co-advocate, and co-mediatrix, um, meaning she, all, the gra- all the graces to us come through Mary. So even when you pray to God, he answers us through Mary, even if we don't know it. Every grace comes to us through Mary, just like he came to us through Mary. So those three books from Mark Maravelli, they're for beginning, beginning Catholics. They helped me on my way to the Catholic Church. So true devotion to Mary. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Kristen. God bless you, sweetheart. Um, 
Judith, who we answered before, who left the message online, James tells me she called back and gave us more context when she asked if uh, if we uh, do something poorly toward our parents after they die. Are we still sinning against the fourth commandment? And I said, yes. And now Judith says, when I refer to dishonoring parents, my specific concern, if a child were to leave the religion that they were raised in, read different Bibles, etc., she's not specifically referring to offenses against the faith, would like your thoughts. She's still dishonoring parents. But the fact is, yes, she still will be leaving the parents that she was raised, leaving the faith that God gave her parents the stewardship of to raise her in. However, no one should be a Catholic because their parents said so. You must find out if it's true so that it's your faith, not your parents' faith. And then you will honor them even more so. God bless you, everyone. We'll be with you tomorrow.